Welcome to the conversation on TYT. I'm your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini. So good to have you with us. And I'm so excited to speak with our next guest. She is an educator, an entrepreneur, an activist, a mother, a national organizer with the Women's March, and the author of a new book called Raising Our Hands, How White Women Can Stop Avoiding Hard Conversations, Start Accepting Responsibility, and Find Our Place on the New Front Lines. Please welcome Jenna Arnold. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. This is this is a great title of a book. I want to read this book and I haven't yet, so I apologize number one. But why did you write it in the first place? Uh, it's a good question, and people have asked me uh, how long it took me to write this book. And the truth is, is it took me three years, but it really took me 39 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I wrote this book because when I stood on stage at the Women's March uh, the day after Trump was inaugurated in 2017, I looked out at a sea of a tremendous amount of pink hats that seemed to be worn by mostly white women. And I tried to back that into that statistic that haunts so many people that 54% of American white women women voted for Trump in 2016 and then tried to reconcile that with the relationships that I have with so many white women, well-intended, good women who live their lives with values at the center of it, who are responsible for raising me, who pulled the lever for somebody who I just simply can't align with. And so I was trying to add up what I was seeing visually, what the statistics were saying, even though I have a hard time believing or trusting any exit polls in general, and then my overall relationship with white women. And it wasn't adding up. So I thought I would spend some time diving into this very specific rabbit hole, which is a request and a call from activists on the front lines representing marginalized communities for decades from Malcolm X to folks today who are saying, please, white women, white folk, go get white folk. And no one's interested in being gotten per se. And it's obviously a very complex concept of how to invite those in, how to have courageous conversations. And it's only become increasingly more difficult, although urgent and timely and very overdue. And so I was responding to their request and had this moment where I was like, okay, where's that like listserv to sign up for? And where's that book that I need to read? And what is it that I need to do to help call in the white women in my world? And it just didn't exist. So this is a classic example of I needed to read the book that I ended up writing. <laughs> Absolutely, and and it does feel like it is directed towards you know women who do believe in racial justice and they you know do believe Black Lives Matter and and they were there wearing hats when Trump was inaugurated. You specifically name a complacency that sometimes white women fall into and the sort of the sitting on the sidelines that happens. Talk talk about that and why do you think that is? Because it's much easier to opt out than to look at the hard truth. I mean, this is, you see this in parents who have children who have learning disabilities or mental health disabilities. There's a lot of denial that happens initially. And then at some point, there's a breaking point when it's like, okay, we actually have to confront this. And I'm seeing this a lot right now in 
all of the political discourse, particularly um, coming from those who are interested in seeing Trump get elected for another four years, is that there's this strong desire to believe the statistics and the arguments and the narrative that he's constructing. Because the truth is, Francesca, I want to believe it too. It's really easy to um, believe that we are the greatest country in the world. And by what measure is greatness? I'm not interested in trying to figure that out. But I think mm. it's like a red herring and totally bogus to suggest that. But this concept that we saw um, woven through all of the, the speeches at the RNC in a very effective way was we're great. Everything that we've done was right on point. Yeah, we might have made a couple of mistakes, but we figured it out. We are the land of the brave. We're always the ones who know how to navigate the complexity and you're welcome. And the mm -hmm. truth is, if I could opt into that reality, it would give me permission to go and like finish that Netflix series I never finished from five years ago. Like, of course, I want to focus on the length of my plank. Of course, I want to like be able to, you know, just kick it with my friends and drink margaritas. I crave that. And so, any opportunity to opt out of the realities of so many, particularly when it's hard to see and hard to admit and the solution is definitively not within arm's reach. Anyone who's gonna offer them you know, an exit route to reality, most people are gonna take. And so that complacency comes in a moment when all we have to be doing as a collective, irregardless of where you fall in the political spectrum, is lean into the difficult conversations, lean into the courageous conversations with each other because um, the chasm between us is just getting wider. Yeah. Um, it's it's It sounds like that it is. A, I mean, it, it's it's a, a a symptom of privilege itself. Like it's a symptom of of white privilege in and of itself. The ability to sort of opt out, whereas we know Black Americans, a lot of you know Americans of color, cannot just opt out of the conversation or the struggle. Um, one one part of this is um, it is like, I think one thing that you talk about is that a lot of white women feel like they have to be perfect, that you, you have to be perfect and know everything before you can join any kind of social movement or join any kind of organization. What is your response to, to that? Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a legacy weight that we carry that is part of how the narrative of America is constructed that we all that the founders perfectly you know documented our our founding documents to the how we're handling global foreign policy issues what it how it is that we're confronting a pandemic and this belief and this desire that we're doing it in a perfect way then sort of trickles down into the way that we behave in um in our country clubs at you know at the water what's it called the the you know, the water fountain. I know it's not mm -hmm. the water fountain at work, but this idea that I can't engage in a complicated conversation unless I'm going to perfectly articulate my perspective, perfectly be able to move the person I'm in conversation with, even if they come back at me with a rebuttal, then ultimately convince them to my side of the perspective and then perfectly exit. So when you have women who are gun loving gun owners who are shrieking inside about what's happening in the south side of Chicago in our first grade classrooms, 
still unwilling to step into conversations about gun control because they can't perfectly articulate gun show loophole and background check. That's an, a huge missed opportunity because this idea is that we don't have to perfectly be able to speak to all of the NRA talking points and all of the anti-gun movement. All we have to do is stand on the line that we are not we it is not acceptable what's happening in our protest or in our first grade classrooms, right? Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. That line we can hold and if we hold the human line instead of the fact line, it will bring people even closer to our rage and our emotion and our vulnerability in ways that facts never allow for. And I think the press, I'll hold you guys accountable to this too, that the more you lean into facts and John Adams said this, facts are stubborn things. And I've seen people interpret spreadsheets with the same exact numbers in drastically different ways. And that's not how we're gonna navigate. That's not how we're gonna get through the crisis that we're in because we're in a human crisis. Yeah, you, I think that's really important is to embrace your imperfection. I mean, a lot of my experiences with more liberal women who maybe sit on the sidelines because they don't feel like they have a role to play and or they have to be perfectly knowledgeable about every single topic and every single issue like you're saying. Or they feel that they themselves live a contradiction um, that they are, Unable to mend, or you know, um, or they think that they have implicit biases themselves, and it's like all that's part of it. Like, just go forth with that. You're never gonna shed that. That's right, and it's all true. And one of the things that happened 24 hours before Floyd was murdered was the Amy Cooper scenario or the Amy Cooper circumstance in Central Park. And then the media exploded to a, oh, is she racist or is she not racist? And my desire for us is to like stop having the question about whether or not we all have racial biases, misogynistic biases, anti-Semitic biases, biases against blonde haired girls who wear glasses or women with you know short bob cuts that wear red lipstick. Like the answer is yes to all of that. We don't need to debate where are, um, whether or not we are or aren't and just lean into the fact that we do. It's on the spectrum and reposition ourselves as goalies. And I found that progressive women in general, that the, the scholars suggested more broadly speaking that progressives are considered quite quote unquote dangerous. And I didn't really appreciate that until I got into my studies and to my research. But I found that to be the case because liberal women would be, wouldn't ask the clarifying questions about race, gender, class, disability that more conservative women would. And so I think in general, there's this hesitancy to get into the work because there's someone who's you know, grading you. And obviously we have to be concerned about cancel culture, which I happen to think Trump has gotten very right, right? That the mm. left going to implode itself because of cancel culture. And my invitation to viewers is sit in the I don't know-ness, sit in the grayness. The only way we get through this is with with vulnerability and and extend that generosity to other people too. Okay, last last words before November for white women who wanna have those uncomfortable conversations with their relatives, their family members, the sort of go get your girl, go get that 40, 54% yeah. of Trump voters, what, what are your suggestions? So given the fact that we only have a few moments, I would just say start the conversation with saying you're scared. Don't show up with statistics, talk about being afraid. Talk about what that afraid looks like. Talk about the frightenedness. Don't try to engage in a fact ward. No one's gonna win, even if our facts are stacked. Right.
Talk Jenna Arnold, thank you so much. Raising our hands, how white women can stop avoiding hard conversations, accept responsibility and find our new place on the front lines. Something like that, I got that a little bit wrong. It's Jenna cousin. Arnold, you're amazing. Thank you for writing this book, take care. Welcome back to the conversation on the Young Turks. I'm Francesca Fiorentini. My next guest, you've probably seen before. He is a former senior advisor on both the Bernie Sanders presidential campaigns, owner of Solidarity Strategies, and now author of the new book, The Inside Story of How Bernie Sanders Brought Latinos into the Political Revolution. Please welcome Chuck Rocha. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you for being here. Just right off the bat, this book, why write this book instead of selling this information to the DNC for millions and millions of dollars? Because I'm an idiot, that's why. <laughs> uh, and because, look, I've been doing this for 31 years. And there's one thing that people have always told me, being the most senior Latino always in the room, is that Latinos don't vote. And if I had one chance in history to write a book that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt, where there was a, a, like evidence that you couldn't refute in any way, then I wanted to write the book. I wanted to write the book for numbers of reasons, but the main reason was to show everybody how you can get the Latino vote out, whether you're a Democrat, Republican, Independent. And my theory is that if you want our vote, come to our neighborhoods and fight for our vote. Spend your money. Heck, Republicans, I welcome you in too. You want to spend money? You want to tell us why? Waste your money, but come on in and talk to us. Spend some money. We could use it. <laughs> I remember when I was in Nevada, and I this year. And I remember I was listening to a radio playing and it was a Spanish language radio station and there was an ad for Bernie Sanders right there in Spanish. And I was like, man, this is how you do it. So beyond just the radio ads, meeting people where they're at, what did it look like at the grassroots level? Um, specifically, how, how did the Bernie Sanders campaign interface with some of the Latino organized organizations and organizers that were already doing incredible work? Well, we went in early and the key to the Latino vote in this book and with anybody who wants to do this is starting early and not treating our demographic as a GOTV universe, a get out the vote universe, a base universe. No, 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 no. Latino voters are persuasion universe. There's about 20% of our electorate that's gonna vote for any Republican. It's mainly Cubans, folks that live in Florida, but there's 20% hardcore Republican Latinos. They'll always vote for Republicans. There's about 45, 50% of Latinos who are gonna vote for a Democrat, but there is a large swath of us in the middle who are persuadable voters. So come in and let me say it, put it to you this way. What I tell folks, anybody who works in politics, if you'll treat a Latino as as prized a possession as you do suburban persuadable women <laughs> voters, you will get more bang for your buck investing in our neighborhood than you will another steel worker in Indiana who you're trying to persuade away from Donald Trump who once voted for Barack Obama. Amen, we just got done with a conversation about white women voting for Trump. But this is this push and pull within the Democratic Party, right? Do you you know, grow this base, the sort of natural allies like Latino voters or try to get that moderate white voter? Maybe it's both. Um, what was it about the campaign specifically? I mean, you're saying that even Republicans can do it, but was it, the, was, was it Bernie's message and to what extent was it Bernie's message? Look, all of these policy wonks out there who love to think that policy is the driving force and want to have an analytical debate about what policy is right. If elections were about policy proposals, Elizabeth Warren would have been the nominee. It ain't got anything to do with policy in the beginning. It has to do with targeting and making the ask, especially with Latinos. With Latinos, there's a big swath of people who never get asked about voting, who never get anything sent to them because they're not a prime 
voter. So mm -hmm. in Nevada, for example, while you were there, there was 107,000 Latinos who had registered since Donald Trump had been president, who nobody was gonna talk to. There was another 70,000 Latinos who only vote in general elections, who don't even vote in primaries, much less me try to talk them into going to a caucus where you had to stand in a gymnasium and publicly support somebody. So I targeted all of those people for a long period of time. And I talked to them on average of 22 different times over seven months. That's how you run a program. That sounds crazy to people out there, but that's how they do white voters every single day in Washington DC in every campaign that I've ever run. And then normally at the end, they're like, mm, we should Google translate that great English ad we have into Spanish and put it on Telemundo. And now we have a Latino turnout operation. <laughs> so you're you're basically just saying treat Latino voters like you treat white voters, hold their hands in that same special way, and you'll get them out and voting for your but candidate. Another key to that is a two words that I love called cultural competency. Every ad that Bernie made was made by brown people. Every <laughs> consultant that we hired that delivered each one of these products was a Latino. We had 200 Latinos on the staff. A lot of these campaigns, most of these campaigns, 99% of all those campaigns out there, have woke white consultants out there doing your Latino outreach who don't even understand our community. On the voter file, Chuck Rocha in DC and Charles Rocha in Pittsburgh, my son, are on the voter file as both Latino voters. I'm 50 years old, I come home every evening to watch a 72 inch TV. My son don't even own a TV, I ain't never been on TikTok. There's two different places where you gotta talk to different demographics if you actually want to get to us and show up in our community and talk to us about issues. Yeah. I mean, but I also, and then back to the organizational thing is that, you know, I know there were really amazing groups like Mi Gente that had an operational, you know, a grassroots. And you didn't have just voters, you had volunteers and people who came out and people who really knocked doors and who did that, that, that legwork. So what was it? Like I'm saying, like I, I, I gotta say, I think you, you're, you're not giving yourself enough credit that I think it was Bernie Sanders' specific message, um, maybe even a more, you know, progressive Democratic Socialist message, that got voters out, that got people out. I would disagree. They did did not get the voters out, but I would agree that his message resonated very strongly in the Latino community. The reason they got out is because I paid money to go get them out, whether it was grassroots call, a text message, a knock on their door, a phone, or mail piece. Mm -hmm. The key here is that I opened the door with an emotional argument to introduce Bernie Sanders. I never talked about issues, but once they trusted me, hence the long time period. This is the key to the long time period, because once they saw, hey, Bernie Sanders, son of an immigrant, daddy came here, couldn't speak English, didn't have any money. Now I'm gonna start talking to you about issues that I know you care about like Medicare for all, $15 minimum wage, making sure that your college is affordable. Oh My God, it was a culmination, but that initial thing is you can't just barge in off the street into a Latino's house and start talking about healthcare. They don't know who you are and where you come from. So I'm saying opening up that targeting, open the door to have that conversation where they lined up immediately with him on his value set of what the issues was. So it isn't one or the other, it's a combination of both. Right. Oh, and let me go back to the political part of what you're talking about with the organizations. If you read T.O. Bernie, my book, T.O.BernieBook.com is where you can get it. I tell this long story about Anna Lilia Mejia. Anna Lilia is our national political director who went and worked with all of those amazing groups that were out there doing this work on the ground. Imagine that, a Latina, not in charge of the Latino political department, not over siloed off in some Latino outreach program, but the national political director for all politics. Bernie Sanders 
won all of this vote with the Latino demographic without, I love this, without having a Latino department. Because for 30 years, I've seen Latino departments siloed off over in the corner, no power, no budget authority. And they're just rolled out every time we go to the National Council of La Raza Convention. Yeah, right, so so don't get a wise. Make it actually part of your overall campaign strategy. I mean, I love this. I also think that a lot of people on the left, mistakenly, like you're saying, think that if you open with Medicare for all, everyone will know what you're talking about and they'll flock to you. But you're you're making that you know you're saying no. You actually the personal connections, some of those more personal stories, being around, investing, does a lot goes a lot farther. Because we did a broad target. You know, if you just go to that little bitty chunk of micro targeted prime voters, yeah, they're going to understand Medicare and healthcare policy. But that was only 30% of the target. The other 70% didn't know anything about any of these issues or who Bernie Sanders was. Most of them now don't know who Joe Biden or Kamala Harris is. You have to go in and make that introduction early and often. And that's why I wrote this book. It also is through a lens of field organizing, to your point. You know, only part of this book is about the Latino outreach. The other part is about my personal journey, if you will, to Bernie. Because I think it's important to know that there are people out here like me doing this work, who, who do this work, who never went to college, who was a single father at 19, who's got a criminal record, who's this big, crazy brown man who sounds like a white man when I talk. I wanted other young brown and black kids to know that they could do this as well. Absolutely, that's wonderful. Um, thoughts on November, if, if Biden doesn't have the ground game and the Latino outreach that Bernie Sanders had, uh, is he, is, are they knocking down your door? Are they buying your, your strategic consultation, Chuck? Or are no. they reading your book? Look, we knew they weren't gonna hire me. So I created a pack called Nuestro Pack. And Nuestro Pack is the biggest Latino super pack in the country. We've already spent $4 million. I need to spend 40 million more, but we're not getting funded as much as the big white groups who have got $300 million going towards them. But if it's the last thing that I do, I can't take my toys and go home because Bernie didn't win. If this crazy man is reelected, I have family, I've got friends and three staffers that could be deported who work under DACA and TPS. I'm in this fight to the end, cuz like Bernie Sanders said, I'm supposed to do everything I can do to get rid of this president. When the next election comes around, I'll be able to pick my favorite candidate for whatever elected position I want to do. And I can work for them to make sure that I align with them. But for right now, it's my job to beat Donald Trump. Chuck Rocha with all of his toys, not going anywhere. We need you in this fight. Thank you so much for leading it and for doing all that you've done and for speaking like this so boldly and so directly like we need to hear it. Please, please, teoburney.com is it? Teo Bernie book. Teo Bernie raising, uh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm reading the whole thing. In the inside story of how Bernie Sanders brought Latinos into the political revolution. Chuck Rocha, thank you so much. Thank you.